This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Five, four, three, two, one. But who's counting, right? His name is Major. Oh, ladies and gentlemen. Please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major, fantastic. It's the takeout. This is a major achievement. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major Garrett. Yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Major Garrett. Major, that's nonsense. And you should know better. Is Major out of the doghouse? <laughs> the answer is yes. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett. Welcome again to my dining room for now uh, 13 consecutive months. This show usually as it was before the pandemic done in a restaurant here in D.C. or whenever we were on the road. Haven't done that in a long time. Not sure when we'll do it next, but we're going to get back to restaurants eventually. No time to waste. We have a great guest this week. We're going to lighten it up a little bit. Roy Wood Jr. is our guest. If you are a fan of Comedy Central, and I suspect you probably are, you know his great correspondent work. He also is a stand-up comedian. He was a DJ at an earlier stage in his career. He is working on different gigs now. We'll talk about those in a minute. Roy Wood Jr., great to meet you. Thanks for joining us. Love to have you here on the show. An honor and a pleasure. And when I tell you we've watched so many of your news packages at The Daily Show to see how journalism should be done, it would be an understatement. Thank you for thank you for saying that. I appreciate it. And and if there's anything in there that that uh, yielded comedic value, uh, I'm I'm all the more pleased. All the more pleased. So how you doing, man? How, how have you how have you handled the pandemic? What's it been like for the comedic the comedic world to adjust to a life where you can't do and the thing that you most want to do with the people you most want to do it with? For me, I shifted to writing. Mm-hmm. You know, I did a ton of writing and just trying to do scripted stuff and, you know, trying to write a film, try to write a TV show, but still like just collecting joke premises and keeping the, the notebook didn't stop getting fat mm-hmm. during, during the pandemic. But now as the country starts to quote thaw a bit, um, you start to think about getting back out on the road. And now I'm starting to look at that joke book and go, all right, let's sift through all of this and see what's actually worth taking back out on stage. But, you know, it was, it was a, you know, it was a needed time, I think for a lot of comedians to be able to just sit and absorb the world, which to me is an important part of the comedic process, because I, I consider comedy this bizarro form of journalism where you're either reporting on yourself or you're reporting on the world and you need time. You know, Chris Rock has always said, you know, you need time to go live and then come back to the stage. And so I think every comedian was forced to go do that for a while. Anything funny about the pandemic at all? Oh, I think where there is pain, there's always humor. You just have to find, you just have to find 
the things that are adjacent to the pain. The joke is never in the pain itself. My aunt, we lost my aunt in April, and this was so early in the pandemic, we can't even say it's COVID because it happened in Mississippi, and you know they weren't testing yet mm-hmm. in Mississippi right. in April. And, you know, she was, you know, a bunch of underlying conditions, and, you know, she she fit the bill for the person who should not catch COVID. And she died, and we could not go to her funeral. And that was just bananas, that concept. So my uncle, who lives in Memphis, about an hour from Clarksdale, Mississippi, where she was being buried, we sent him down to record the funeral. We say, uncle, you are in charge of capturing the final moment that our beloved family member is being laid to rest. Do you have a good camera? I got a good camera. Don't be telling me about my camera. My camera, good. Tired of y'all being in my bed. I got a good camera. Not only did he have an iPhone 4, Major Garrett, <laughs> he recorded our aunt's graveside burial vertically. The casket's not even in the shot. <laughs> you can't help but laugh at that. No, you, like, you I, can't. It, right. Because it's adjacent to the pain. The pain is so real, but you can't help but laugh at that. This is the, this is your only shot. Like, cause, cause right. I, I, and you know me, coming from production, my brain was, hey, I'll hire someone. Mm-hmm. I will pay someone yeah. a couple hundred bucks to drive to Mississippi and set up a tripod and just point it at the grave. Mm-hmm. Don't know me, nobody. Just me. <laughs> See, y'all already sending somebody stand over my shoulder. He's the youngest child of all of my mother's siblings. So mm-hmm. he's always lived in that shadow. of So he's, he's dealing with that complex his right. whole life. Mm-hmm. Fine, Uncle Derek, shoot Auntie Rose's funeral. Mm-hmm. Put it on Facebook and let us see it. It's all vertical and he's talking over it. My point is, right. no matter what is happening, there's something there. Mm-hmm. But sometimes it takes time to get away from the pain to be sure. able to process it. Sure. Um, are you contemplating uh, doing any stand-up in the near future in New York no, or we're elsewhere? Back, baby. Oh, you are? We're back. Okay. I'm back. I'm back in about a week, but I'm keeping it tri-state for a month. Mm-hmm. You know, I do feel like the Tri-States had a pretty good grasp on things. And, mm-hmm. you know, in talking with the comedians that have played these venues, um, you know, it, like 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 if this was if this was if this was the armed services, I'm the Air Force. Like I talked to the Marine comedians who were the first wave mm-hmm. who went mm-hmm. into the clubs, you know, a month right. ago. What was yeah. it like? Right. Was it man? Was it zombies <laughs> in this? <laughs> And I go, no, it's fine, man. You just kind of stand a little further away from the crowd. It's like doing a show on a Wednesday afternoon. I go, right. oh, cool. I've done that before. Yeah, right. No problem. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So, I'm, you know, I got to get back out, man. And mm-hmm. to the places that are safe and for the people that want to be safe, you know, God bless you. Come out and laugh. I understand what's happening. I, I, I have road dates penciled mm-hmm. for the rest of the summer, but they are not official yet. Right. And it's not, I it's nothing's official yet. Right. Because, I mean, you still got variants coming up around the corner. Mm-hmm. Like, there's still a lot of things that are a little weird. Now, I, the irony is that, though, I'm still not going out to eat, mm-hmm. which sounds weird. But, you know, we still get groceries delivered, you yep. know, here in New York. Um, we keep it to my son's um, preschool pod. His his preschool has a really good situation of how they have the kids, you know, kind of section. So you have your quarantine buddies that you are... But all the parents of the school are essentially, hey, nobody goes anywhere or does anything. Agreed? Right. It's for the kids, right? And we're yeah. like, yeah, I agree. I would rather my kid be out the house playing with your child than for all of us to be stuck at home. So, 
Right. That, if anything, that's been the hardest part of quarantine is making sure that my son is able to remain active. He's four. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't quite understand this. And what he does understand about COVID, it's becoming a little scary because it's a, you don't want the germs to get in there and kill you. You know, kids yeah. at four, they can, you know, their their mind can go places. Yes, their imaginations can genuinely run wild. Uh, we all yeah. have understood things we missed and things we possibly took for granted. Did you find yourself at all surprised how much you missed stand-up and the audience and the feedback and all that comes with it? Yeah. The other thing I missed is how much being alone contributes to my creative process and how just being, because when I'm home, I cannot turn on my creative switch. And it takes being out in the world, the walk, the train, taking the city bus sometimes to a gig because I'm too late to go get the train. Like those moments of isolation, they're brief, but they were very, very pivotal. That Saturday morning in a hotel in middle America, that's pivotal to my creativity. And that's something that I really took for granted. And I had to fight hard to figure out new ways to try and come up with stuff. But I'm anxious to see people again. Because mm-hmm. on the other side of this, people are coming out of this in the same pain, with the same unemployment They've had loss now. Some of them had COVID themselves. They're paranoid. So within that, there's a need for laughter. And you can name me the decade. You can name me the century of whatever big disease outbreak. And there's entertainment on the other side of that. Yep. Yep. So uh, those who think, well, New York must be dead now. What do you say to that? New York ain't dead. New York was dormant, but it was never dead. Uh, you know, I loved I loved seeing the photo of Seinfeld on the night that the comedy clubs in New York City reopened. He mm-hmm. was at Gotham, uh, Gotham Comedy Club. And I was like, hell yeah. Like that was, you know, comedians. It, Seinfeld kind of represented comedians putting a flag in the sand and going, no, damn it. We are still here. Mm-hmm. The city is still here. And I think that serves to some degree as a bit of a beacon to other places. Maybe not. Texas. They don't need a beacon. They, <laughs> they got their own light field. They got their they own light field. Never dormant. <laughs> no, no. Oh, Georgia either. Uh, but yeah, as, as a comedian though, you know, this is good. It's good to see the comedy clubs alive. These are our friends, the wait staffs, the club owners, the bookers. Uh, it's great to see a lot of them, you know, surviving. You know, I was in a panic when this first happened. Myself and comedian Mike Birbiglia, uh, we were doing fundraisers for the clubs called Tip Your Wait Staff. Well, we just wanted to make sure that the wait staffs who were being laid off had some money to kite them. This is, we're literally like three weeks into the shutdown at this time. We're long before PPE loans mm-hmm. and all of the stimulus checks and all, none of that is right. even being discussed at this point. Mm-hmm. And so there was a real fear that a lot of these venues will not remain. That's still. Right. I still have that concern. There's a little bit of that still up in the open. Yeah. Uh, Exactly. Uh, Roy Wood Jr. is our special guest. Back for segment two of The Takeout in just one moment. This podcast is supported by FedEx. 
FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back, Roy Wood Jr., super talented, super funny guy, is our special guest. Like I said, we're lighting it up a little bit. I know that first segment was a little heavy because it's a lot of COVID stuff. But yeah, we got to talk about the real world also. Uh-huh. Roy, what is funny uh, about America's reckoning? And that's the word I think most people are using with race. I've seen a lot of your stand up and you're like, I, there's this phrase I heard you use and I want you to talk to my audience a little bit about it. And I want to see if I get it right. I'd rather talk to somebody who I disagree with than with somebody whose eyes are closed. Yeah. What, is it, what does that mean? If we can't agree on what's happening, or that what is happening happened yes if we cannot agree on that then there's a whole backstory that we have to get into that i just don't have the time for like that's it's it's like it's like it's like sports politics is very much like sports was it a fumble or not well i don't know was it like i i if we can't both agree that it was a fumble, then we can't even talk about whether or not it was a good game and how the team could have, what they could have done differently to win. Like that part of it is you, you feel like sometimes you're arguing with a bunch of referees when it comes to politics in this country. Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, what's funny about it is the number of people who continue to be surprised and shocked and, oh, could you really? That's, how would it? I just, I didn't know. Did you know that people, the people are going out and they don't like Asians and they're being mean to it? Yes. Yes, I can believe it because I'm black. I haven't been through it. So when you bring this level of surprise about a thing to someone who's regularly been wronged, mm-hmm. like if you want to be surprised about racism, don't take it to your black friends. They're not surprised. Okay. I understand you want to have something to, you know, water cooler talk. And, you know, you want to, because that's the other thing about the country reopening. You're back at work now with people you haven't seen in a year. And they're going through a lot of stuff. And you're trying to find something to casually chit chat with them about. Race probably shouldn't be the first thing, especially if you're shocked about it. But, you know, conversations around solutions, conversations around comforting, I think those things are you know, pretty unifying. What do you think? What do you think about the word woke? And you can probably already detect as I have Republicans, conservatives want to weaponize that word and make it an epithet. They have already. Yeah. They already have. You dare to disagree with me. You're woke. And woke. just even when you say it with a particular, this cancel culture that the woke and the left and the, like that, the word, well, to, to answer the question, um, the word has been generalized now. 
What does it mean so to you? It's probably not the it to me, woke just means someone who cares. Your eyes are open. That's where it came from. You're awakened. You're woke. <laughs> you, you woke up. Open to, yeah, you're aware of some of the horrors that are going on in the world. Now, whether or not you agree with how someone sees the world, that's where the annoyance comes in. And you go, oh, these woke people. And that's what I don't like. Well, the, 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 the thing I really like is when they go, the woke left. <laughs> like, that's, the, <laughs> that's the thing that it's like decency has somehow been assigned to a particular party. Mm -hmm. Hey man, when you're arresting somebody, how about don't put your knee on his neck until he dies? That's not woke. That's just decency. That's observing something. Yes. Mm -hmm. Justice isn't woke. That's supposed to be, you know, let, let the streets tell it. It's supposed to be bipartisan. Um, I don't like the way the word is thrown around in that sense, because I think it generalizes an entire culture. It's it's much in the same thing. It's the same way that Black Lives Matter was rolled into this burrito to include outside agitators that do not represent that group, that have never represented that group, that employ tactics, that Black Lives Matter has never endorsed. In fact, they publicly denounced. So it's it's a strategy to continue groupthink against things that, in my opinion, can make the world a better place. Right. It's this hyphenization, Black Lives Matter Antifa. It's like it's all one word. It's like it's just all jammed together. Yeah. And then people are so lazy that they don't even look for nuance in it. They just go, yeah, those woke, I'm not. And then you're deliberately rebelling against something that could benefit you, dummy. The voting laws in Georgia and what's happening there that's going to hurt white people too, dummy. Right. It's not. When you have fewer drop boxes and, yeah. and there are other limitations on when you can register and how you can register. That affects everybody. Yes, especially people in poor counties. There's poor white people too, last I checked. <laughs> totally. Well, I haven't checked the census. <laughs> more poor white people than poor but, but listen i'm not here to to, yeah. to talk numbers because people don't believe in numbers because that's like a fumble mm-hmm. that's not real math's not real <laughs> we can't even agree on that so half uh, a million died from covid no they were sick and covid just you know right, yeah, right so I want to play you a soundbite jamie get this ready uh people who uh have been fans of the show for a long time know that my Greatest comedic hero is George Carlin. Uh, he mm. was the first philosopher of my life. I listened to all of his records when I was a kid, and he taught me a lot about the world. And I think that's what great comedians do. They're philosophers and they're teachers, and they also make you laugh. So one of the things I learned from George Carlin, Carlin was this term, White Harlem, which is what he called his Irish neighborhood near Columbia University growing up in New York City. Now, I grew up in San Diego. I didn't know anything about New York or Harlem or anything, but he was talking about his white Irish friends and what he observed when they hung out or if they were to hang out for any length of time with African-Americans in Harlem. Jamie, play the clip. So you get five white guys like this, my kind of guys from my neighborhood, you know, all these guys here, five white guys, and put them with five black guys and let them hang around together for about a month. And at the end of the month, you'll notice that the white guys are walking and talking and standing like the black guys do. You'll never see the black guys saying, oh, golly, we won the big game today. Yes, sir. 
But you'll see guys with red hair and freckles named Duffy say, what's happening? Nothing to it. You got it, man. Right? That's cool. <laughs> that taught me something about what happens when people from different cultures, different places hang out. But the, the setup for that bit for George Carlin was to say he found it amazing that the least free people in America, and this is Occupation Fools, the album, if you want to find it, ladies and gentlemen. Um, this is the late 60s, early 70s. The least free people in America, black people, were the freest with their music, freest with their language, freest with their culture, freest with their expressions. And that was always, he saw, as attractive. And it pulled white people, in his case, these Irish guys in his neighborhood, closer to them. And it was a fascinating observation, funny, but it taught me a lot. I just like your thoughts. Uh, That hasn't changed today. I mean, when you look at a lot of the appropriation of African-American culture. Like, let's just keep it simple. The girl, um, I can't forget. Uh, I hate that I'm forgetting the young woman's name. Uh, oh, Addis, I think it's Addison Ray. She goes on Jimmy Fallon, does a bunch of TikTok dances that are popular. And it's revealed that, you know, the origins of a lot of those dances that she's getting a lot of, you know, money and opportunity from is from black social media creators. So there's something to there's something to the cool of blackness that definitely um, there there's a lot of appeal in that, and I don't think it's just white people. That's across the ocean. When you mm-hmm. look at hip hop culture yep. um, in Japan and in South Korea, that's all American influence. That's all influence from the New York specifically New York City um, black culture. Um, I think that's still true today. The thing that's unfortunate is that, you know, if it's cool to act black or listen to black music or dress black, but there are a lot of people that would argue that, you know, those same people will go home and they won't do anything with regards to voting to benefit those same people that you think is so cool. And I think that's where the divide is. You know, I would rather you match black people's political goals than whatever dance they're doing. Understood. Roy Wood Jr. is our special guest. More of our conversation on comedy, race, America, the pandemic, a lot of other things we'll think about or haven't even thought about yet. I'm Major Garrett. This is The Takeout. Segment two is ended. Segment three coming up. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Roy Wood Jr. is our special guest. He is a correspondent for Comedy Central, does a lot of other great things, stand-up comedian. I've seen some of your bits, Roy, and one of the ones that really had me falling out was about black music in America, telling the story, and how <laughs> no, no one who is black in America writes a patriotic song. Walk my audience down through those observations, if you'd be so kind. So I got into an argument with my uncle, same argument from the aunt funeral. We argue a lot, you know, Uncle Derek, about... Patriotism. The origins of this was with the whole cat. This was peak Kaepernick taking it. Kaepernick was still in the NFL when we were having this argument. And this presumption of patriotism by black that, well, you're here, you should be patriotic. Like, no, I've kind of had a different experience. If I if a black person didn't want to be patriotic, they're justified. And I was trying to find elements of proof that black people were patriotic. And the first thing I looked at was neighborhoods. In black neighborhoods, you don't find American flags hanging off of the front post 
you know, off the front door or whatever. Not as frequently as you will in suburban white neighborhoods, right? Correct. Not as frequently. That's that's probably a fairer way to say that. And I was wondering about that. And then I started looking at, you know, all of the different songs, the national anthem. There's a national anthem. And then you had the Lee Greenwood, I'm proud to be an American, Toby Keith and all the country music. Every time we go to war, some country artist drops four or five new, we'll kick ass and send a bomb song. And that thought led to the exploration of, well, why don't Black people do that? Why aren't there, are there any original Black patriotic? And I just started digging and digging and digging. And the only thing I could find was Black people singing about cities and regions. And so, you know, I don't really go into jokes with an idea of this is funny. I try to go into it with the, this is curious. How can I make this funny? So you go like a reporter, you go, you do your research, and then you look at what you've collected and go, all right, what's the story based on what I've collected? I have Will Smith, Miami. I have Ludacris singing Welcome to um, Atlanta. I have Ray Charles singing Georgia on my mind. All right, those about specific regions. Okay, Black people don't sing about America. We sing about specific cities where you can have a good time. I take this to my uncle to pressure test it, and he makes the argument about James Brown living in America. And I go, that's a great point. You're right, it is living in America. He is talking about America and how great America is. But then at the end of the song, James Brown just starts naming cities. And I go, that's the secret message to black people. He named America, he said, America's great. Then at the end of the song, he just said, New Orleans, Detroit City, Dallas, Pittsburgh. Uh, that's that's the secret message. That's what, He was just talking subliminally to black people. And most of the cities that he named at the end of living in America, those are some black ass towns, bro. So <laughs> it, it, it was it was sort of a musical version of the Green Book, right? Correct. Yes. Yeah. Oh man, you should write for me. That, that's <laughs> but yeah, it's like you can't if you just look at black music, we tell you everything we're going through. Black music is so stressful. Like being black in America is so stressful. When we got here after when we got here off the slave ships, the first thing we did was invent the blues. Right. <laughs> There's no blues music in Africa. Blues is of American origin because it's rooted in sadness. This is where the sadness happened. Mm -hmm. So you start looking at the behavioral trends and within that, you start finding the things that can kind of support. Right. And and blues, spirituals, gospel music, all of that is anchored. It's American born. It's it's anchored in pain. Correct. And hope and and belief and hope. But the only reason you need hope is because you're in pain. So it's it's all rooted in this same trauma that we've been trying to, you know, get through and deal with. And can can well-intentioned white people help with that trauma or can we not? I think well-intentioned white people can help, but I think it's important to do it on the terms of the of the group that has been traumatized. I had a I had an opportunity to speak with Charles Person, who's one of the last two living original freedom riders who rode through the South on a bus, you know, basically stress testing integration laws, right? Mm-hmm. And there were white people on the bus with him. And, you know, one of the white people that he had spoken with was talking about how 
they wanted to do this with someone. They finally saw a way, something that they could be a part of, be a part of something. Don't champion and take it over and hijack a movement. That is not well-intentioned. And I think we are so anxious to help and be the hero that we forget to just sometimes just sit back and listen. Sometimes the best thing you do to help is play the background or see where you're needed Mm -hmm. and do that first. You know, I think that's, you know, George is probably a a great example of, you know, what's happening with regards to a lot of the boycotts and a lot of people that are upset about what's happening in Georgia actively are not even listening to people on the ground in Georgia. The same people you were clapping for when they flipped it blue uh, with Warnock and Ossoff, you're ignoring them and going, no, this is what needs to happen. Can't hide. You can't do that. Mm -hmm. Georgians have to take the lead because they're the ones that have had to deal with this. And and uh, I asked that question as a lead up to talking with you about one of the bits I saw you do talking about leaving a Best Buy and wanting to have a bag and why that's important <laughs> in your life and the life of any black person who goes to shop at a Best Buy or a Target or a Walmart or any place. Walk me through that. I bought a Snickers bar at CVS one time and I... I get the receipt. I, I get the receipt. I don't want any confusion walking out of this store on whether or not I paid for this item that's in my hand. So the first thing that calms the security guard is a bag. Second thing is a receipt. And I want the receipt stapled to the front of the bag like Chinese carryout so that you know that this bag came from in the store. Because I just, the paranoia as a black man of what can I do to keep somebody from bothering me today? What can I, you have to make those weird decisions on a regular basis. And the cashier sneered at me because I wanted a bag. I was buying a cell phone case and he goes, you can just put it on right now. I go, I don't want to put it on right now. I'm going to put it on at the house. You know, you know, you you put you know, you put the little the screen protector on the cell phone. You got to be still. And I'm not doing this at the register. I need to be at home. You're going to give me a bag. And he, he mumbled something under his breath about the environment. Well, the environment and plastic. And that, hey, I ain't got time to worry about the earth today. I'm worried about leaving this store safely. Like, that's more important to me. So I need that bag. It's not about the environment. I don't. It's not that I don't care about the earth. It's that I'm literally trying to stay alive. And there'll be those in my audience, Roy, who'll say, well, that can't possibly be going on now. You're super famous. Nobody knows you. That ain't going to happen. Don't don't conflate being famous with being on TV from time to time. Mm-hmm. Number one is what I would say to them. Number two, there are a lot of people, because I'm, quote, famous, would love to take down me, would love to be the guy. To get, that dude from The Daily Show was in here trying to steal a Snickers. And I tackled him to the ground and tased him and held him to the police came. And then the police showed up and beat him and put him in Rikers with no bail for three months in solitary. All because I didn't have a bag. Mm-hmm. And the underlying point is, whether that's true for you or not, it's true for every other black man. Correct. And it's my job as a reporter on the black experience to bring that to light because I am famous. That's my responsibility to the culture is to, you know, my, my goal, my ultimate goal in everything 
everything that I do, be it film, television, whatever, is to show Black people they're not alone in thinking and acting the way they act and to inform non-Black people on what it's like to make moves in this country. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what it boils down to. I, it, you could say I don't go through it. You might be right. But then there's also times where I still get followed around. I follow around a store. Hell, it's what, two weeks ago? I'm like, dude, it's COVID. Like, why are you this close to me? Mm-hmm. Like, that was, I don't know. It, it, it's, it's still, a it's nice still, reminder. It's still real. In other words, it's still real. Roy yeah. Wood Jr. is our special guest. Back for segment four of The Takeout in just one moment. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Roy Wood Jr. is our special guest, continuing our conversation about things he does, bits I've seen of his, super entertaining, super funny, um, Roy, talk to my audience about Golden Corral and the formative experience for your life <laughs> and, and how it informed your worldview. Dude, Golden Corral, here's, there, there's two things, there's three things that I recommend everyone does for their team. Every, there's three jobs everyone should have at some point. One of the three. Military service, work outdoors, or food service. hmm Completely agree. Those three will build character. One of those three. One of those three. Yes, for sure. Yeah. Now, one of those three has much better benefits and retirement and dental. (laughs) The other two, not so much. That Um, that one also has more risks implied also. So, you you know, you got it both directions. Yeah. Yin and yang. (laughs) So the restaurant is important because as a teenager, it's the first time you work around adults who aren't who don't have supervisory authority over you, mm-hmm. your coworkers, essentially. So I got to meet people from all walks of life, all different age groups. There, I was 19 when I worked at Golden Corral. I'd stolen some jeans. I'd stolen some jeans from a mall in Tallahassee at the time. So I'd gotten in a little bit of trouble. Mm-hmm. And so during this time on probation, I'm sitting and I'm just working at Golden Corral. And this is when I start doing stand-up comedy. And the people in that place were so integral to my worldviews because, you know, you're working with people that had some have been in prison. Some were retired military. Some were wanting career and restaurant work, you know, for the rest of their life. And, you know, that thing. How can I put it like it taught me the importance of being kind to people. Mm-hmm. 
And because as a waiter, I had to use humor to it, I, my, 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 my weapon to get better tips was humor. Mm-hmm. So you, I would figure out a joke that I could crack at this table. And if that joke made this table laugh, then I would use that joke on the table over here. Mm-hmm. And then when, the, when my section rotates in you know, 45 minutes and right. new people come in, same joke, new table. But this table's white, that table was black. How can I change this greeting a bit? Mm-hmm. How can I make this joke universal so this is the joke I tell all day to every table? And that was kind of the genesis point of figuring out ways to make my comedy kind of cross cross cultures. Right. To use your phrase from earlier, that's your first experiment with pressure testing and sort of working it out. Correct. Yeah. Correct. It was these it was these miniature four person open bikes that I was having, right. you know, all over the place. And they didn't know they were getting the same joke I used on the table that was here before them. But that was that was the go to. And, you know, it taught me the importance of just being nice to people. You know, I found myself in some very, very terrible situations outside of Golden Corral only to be saved by people who were customers at Golden Corral. Like this dude wanted to beat my face in one night. And one of the guys that he was a mean, he wasn't mean. He was he did not talk. He was a customer who did not talk. Mm-hmm. I'm not here for chit chat. I'm here for the food. Bring me a rotisserie chicken, a whole rotisserie chicken yep. and a carrot cake to my table. Right. And a pitcher of water. This guy and a pitcher of water. <laughs> and this guy never said a word. And, and your job is a server. Hey, how you doing? <laughs> is everything good? Is everything all right? Are you good, man? Okay, I'm gonna just go get you some carrot cake, brother. Okay, you just—he was one of them big, swole dudes that look like he like just working. You ever seen like one of those GNC vitamin shop yeah. employees where they, they're, they're, they're doing a lot of medicines. samples? Yeah. Oh, supplements all day. This guy just has hydroxy cut in his back pocket, just uh, creatine. Fast forward to. Fast forward to we get in a bunch of mess, me and a couple of friends. And this guy, this guy, I don't even know how to put it, but this guy, it was the case of this. So we, we're, we're, we're sitting in this holding cell and this guy is just, I know you and I'm going to beat your ass. And I literally don't know this man, Major. I literally do not know this man. And I'm trying to decide how to, how can I put it? I'm trying to decide how to, do I fight him back? Mm-hmm. What do I do? I don't know. And like a savior from God, this big swole vitamin dude, he just goes, leave little man alone. He cool. He hook up the carrot cake at Golden Corral. And he just sits back down. And I was like, damn, thank you, man. Thank you. Like, you never know when God is going to send you an angel. Right. A small up one, yeah. too. Yeah. Which was exactly yeah. the kind of 1998 was a wild year. So uh, I wanted you to talk about the experience you mentioned, the genes, and it's part of a show you're working on developing right now. Is it not? The, the experience? The probation? Yeah. Well, because you know what it was? When you look at recidivism in this country, there's more people 
out of there's more people on supervised release than in prison. But the terms of supervised release can tend to set people up to be thrown right back in jail. You know, you get a jury of 12, but when you're on probation, you get a jury of one. That is your probation officer. If you're lucky, a judge. Those are the two people who essentially decide whether or not you go back into jail for not meeting terms of your probation. Uh, I was fortunate during my time when I was 19, you know, to have someone that was understanding of, okay, this kid's still in college. He's going to get his degree. He can travel and do things. And so I, I wanted to create a show that kind of reimagines our criminal justice system. If you had more people that cared about the people that are passing through it, you know, we tend to think of people as disposable once they've made a mistake. Right. And, you know, and, and, and the underlying about, question is, is that a mistake? Is it a pattern? And is there a way that the probation system or the judges create a like environment for it? Correct. But our, a lot of our justice system, the way the probation is set up, it's set up to not even ask that question. It's not even asked. It's just you did this. So do this and don't do anything else. We don't care. That's what it is. And I understand that you do the crime, you do the time ideology that, you know, some people have pushed back with me on about Mm -hmm. this. But it's just reimagining what discipline looks like and what the benefits of that could be. You know, like that's to me, that's very, very important. And that's something that just never left me. So that's the show that I wanted to put together. It's just, you know, exploring our criminal justice system from the side of recidivism because everything is catch the crook it's the in jail what's happening inside the jail or it's courtroom drama and there's plenty of room for that but nobody talks about just probation which is just straight up social work and you know a little bit of babysitting but also you know you're kind of a life coach as well right. if, if, under the best so under the best of circumstances that's right a, a life coach that's voice that's the voice of roy wood jr yeah. our special guest for our radio audience we have to say goodbye but for those on cbsn and on all of our podcast platforms stay tuned for the takeout outtake especially from cbs news this is the takeout with major garrett Welcome back. Roy Wood Jr., super smart, super funny, super thoughtful is our special guest. This is the funny games part, Roy. We've been having a lot of fun anyway, so that's just really kind of indistinguishable. But, you know, when it's a heavy news interview, we kind of lighten it up here. But we've been light all time, so let's keep it rolling. Um, We have three questions we ask everyone who's on this show, and we're going into our fifth year. So, in no particular order, uh, most influential book you've ever read, uh, your all-time favorite movie, and uh, if you're going to... Really enjoy yourself. Listen to some music on a long flight or a long drive. What kind of artist or genre are you most likely to listen to? Uh, we'll work our way backwards. Artist and genre, uh, southern hip hop from the '90s, so Outkast, Goody Mob, a little bit of um, a little bit of Ti, maybe Three Six Mafia, and then um, classic rock. Mm-hmm. Those are the two. Okay. I kind of I oscillate between those two. Um, do you view do you view about- a classic rock as white cultural appropriation of blues? In some instances, I know uh, my, my favorite my favorite rock and roll band is Led Zeppelin, and they are legitimately accused of that. It's sped up. 
I don't know, because I, when I think of blues and jazz, I also think of the ideology behind the lyrics. And, you know, you could try to recreate that pain, but I don't think you really can if you haven't lived that or lived adjacent to it. Um, I, could, I could see that. I could see that. I mean, I would make more of an argument for, you know, for more the one-to-one, you know, the the Elvis and the, you know, the chubby checkers of the world and things like that. I think there's more evidence of theft of IP in those regards. I've always enjoyed classic rock. Like it's kind of like the reason why run DMC walked this way is such a perfect um, mashup because it's, it's two rebel cultures. And I know Aerosmith isn't necessarily classic rock, but it's, it is rock. Yeah. Oh yeah, and for sure. I'd put it in that category. Yeah. It, it's 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 middle finger to the man. It's middle finger to the establishment. So I think there's parallels there. Uh, favorite movie all time is Bad Boys. Will Smith, Martin Lawrence. Um, I pretty much know that movie to memory. I'm embarrassed to say. Most inspiring book I've ever or in, read. Or, in, Dude, or influential, influential book that that uh, made made yes. an impact on your life. You got to give me three, bro. <laughs> you can't. All right, one. You said one. Um, yeah, just one. Just one book. Two. Creative Quest by Questlove, mm-hmm. which is an exploration into how creators create okay. and windows into what they do. And Rise and Walk, the Dennis Bird story. Uh, there was a defensive lineman for the New York Jets who was paralyzed uh, in a game and he documented his, his um, time through rehab to walking again after being told by everybody, here's your wheelchair. He's like, nah. And just the determination that the late Dennis Bird, I should say RIP. Uh, but that book at the time that I read it, you know, 16, 17, not sure what I could do. And even if I want to do it, could I do it? That book gave me some straightening. That book, yeah. Excellent, excellent. So I always love to ask comedians who they love uh, as comedians, present or past. So if you have in your mind a Mount Rushmore of comedic greats in America, who's on it? Uh, My Rushmore, let's start with the for sure's. Chris Rock, George Carlin, for sure. Beautiful. Chappelle. Mm -hmm. That fourth slot is hard, bro. Yeah, yeah. That fourth slot is hard. Um, I put Sinbad on my Mount Rushmore. Mm-hmm. Okay. I put Sinbad on my Mount Rushmore, and I know Pryor is there. I understand right. that. Um, I know Red Fox is there. I know Whoopi Goldberg is mm-hmm. there. For me, Eddie Murphy, Sinbad, Eddie, Eddie, of course. Sinbad represents this. For me, that was the first one I saw. Mm-hmm. And he was the first one I saw that I was like, the dream is attainable. Like he made me laugh. Like the other ones I was studying, Mm -hmm. you know, but Sinbad was the first, that was the first person that I saw perform. The first time I ever witnessed stand-up comedy as a thing was Sinbad. And that became kind of the North Star through. And when you look at the career that he's forged and the things that he stands for on and off stage, mm-hmm. this dude had an inclusive crew on his hour special 
20 years ago. All this talk about black cameraman and I need black Disney, and I need a woman that. 20 years ago. He was doing that back during the OJ chase, bro. So there is something about him that is always connected. Not just as a talent, but as an example and a model. Correct. Correct. You know, and yeah. So the people today that are doing it that I like, um, again, that's that's a tough list. Um, I like Neil Brennan. I like, I love Wanda Sykes. Mm -hmm. Absolutely love Wanda Sykes. Doug Stanhope is great. Um, Bill Burr is always kicking teeth in. Uh, Aaron Jackson uh, is a, is another one that's that's on the rise. So take those names down, folks, and when the comedy clubs in your city begin to reopen, take a look at them because yeah. it's all time for us to laugh. Uh, it's always time for us to laugh, but we are going to need and want a lot of belly laughs in the not-too-distant future when we come on the other side of this. And, Roy, you have provided them. You will continue to provide them. You've been our special guest. It's been great hanging out with you. It's been great to meet you, and uh, let's please keep in touch. And, everyone, Absolutely. that's it for the takeout this week. Come back next week. More fun and games here on the Takeout Outtake, especially I'm Major Garrett. See you next week. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Zoe Poindexter, and Jake Rosen. CBSN production by Eric Susanen, Grace Seegers, and Daniel Peebles. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS Audio. If you like the takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.